Evening Cross Point. Hope you guys are doing well this morning, and it is great having the children, the elementary kids in with us this morning. Whenever we have a fifth Sunday in the month, we want to do a family-style worship, and so, so grateful for you guys sharing your memory verse and for being with us this morning. So if you will, turn with me to Mark chapter 10 as we continue in our series through the Gospel of Mark. And and as you turn there, I want to just give you two quick uh, updates on some things I'm super excited about. The first is several weeks ago, we expressed an opportunity to come alongside those in need on the island of St. Vincent in the Caribbean where they had experienced numerous uh, volcanic eruptions that displaced numerous people, making uh, they had to leave their homes, there was a lack of clean water, and we invited you to contribute to that need to come alongside them. Together, as a church, we were able to send over $7,700 together. And I just wanted to say thank you. Thank you for your generosity. Up on the screen, you'll see a a photo of Pastor Blake and his wife, Norma, who distribute uh, these funds for the needs there. And he wrote me an email this week that I want to share with you. He said, thank you and your congregation for the confidence you have placed in us in sending the amount of funds you have sent to us to provide relief supplies for thousands of our people here in St. Vincent who have been displaced by the eruption of La Soufrière Volcano and have reached out to thousands through what we called care packages, dealing with practical everyday needs. People were blessed and as such responded with expressions of praise to God. These persons who left their homes with nothing but the clothes they had on due to the urgency of the evacuation at least received something to sustain them. Thanks to the people of God, including yourself and your congregation who made this possible. Even when and after they return back to their homes and villages, they will still need our assistance for a while yet. Continue to pray for us that further resources will be given to help these people and pray that the lost will so experience the good works of God's people and so glorify our Father in heaven. Like, it brings me such joy. As a church family, this is what I want us to be about right? Like we don't just talk about the gospel here, but we can demonstrate it as well to to peoples around the world. And so thank you for partnering and thank you for being part of that, that I truly, truly believe that together that was more than any one of us could have done individually. So thank you for participating in that opportunity and continue to pray for the needs there. I also want to let you know that next Sunday we are going to be starting a new a sermon series for eight weeks through the summer. Now, if you're wondering if we're going to continue in the Gospel of Mark, the answer is yes. We're going to continue that in September to finish up the book together, but we're going to pause to go through an eight-week series together that we're entitling Joy, Walking in Victory Over the Patterns of Sin. That if you remember at the end of Mark chapter 9, Jesus talked about if your eye causes you to sin, If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to be one-handed and and yet obedient to God than to have two hands and walk in disobedience. Now, Jesus, obviously, of what we were talking about there isn't talking about mutilating the flesh, but rather what it looks like to fight against the patterns of sin in our own life. That as Christians, we 
engage in a war that has already been won in Christ. The enemies were named, they were identified, and they were defeated, and yet they still remain dangerous. These roots of sin that can take like weeds in the garden of our heart that need to be uprooted. And so throughout this series, we're going to help identify what are those weeds. How do we trust in Christ so that our joy and satisfaction is in Christ because our flesh, our fears, our shame, our guilt will tempt us to find our satisfaction in these sins that have already been defeated. When we should be fighting for joy in Christ. And so we're going to be doing this together with the other Crosspoint congregations. So if you're not familiar, we are one church, uh, one family with many churches. There's eight different Crosspoint churches uh, in Central Florida and up to Georgia, and we're going to be going through this together. So you're going to have the opportunity through this series to also hear from uh, our elder A.D. Daisley, Justin Sarah, who was here and then is now the lead pastor at Crosspoint Palm Bay. He's going to be coming back. Ryan Walker, who was the Connections pastor here for years. He's the lead pastor at Crosspoint Downtown. He's going to be here. And so we're able to share in this. So I'm super excited to be able to go through this together, both as a congregation, but also with the broader church as well. So I want to open in prayer, and then we're going to jump back into Mark chapter 10. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this time this morning that we have to, to be in your word. Lord, that as we open it, I pray that you would humble our own hearts, not coming with our own demands, Lord, but in humility before you to hear your words, Lord. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you um, help us to see the beauty of the gospel in the face of Christ? And in Jesus' name, amen. As we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, we've entitled it Following Jesus Together. What does it look like to walk in his footsteps, to listen as he speaks, to watch as he heals, as he performs miracles, as he demonstrates who he is as the Messiah? But the reality is, is as we follow Jesus together, there's a question we need to ask ourselves. It's a question the disciples that we're going to see today had to ask of themselves. Are we following Jesus with prideful ambition or are are we following Jesus with a humble servitude? See, because we can follow after Jesus, but one can be out of the selfishness of our own heart, demanding of God something for ourselves, demanding something of others because we're following Jesus. Or are we following Jesus by laying down our life, living in surrender to him, not demanding of Jesus, but rather in surrender to him. And in that posture, also surrendering and serving others as we follow Jesus. And so the the question I want you to be considering in your own heart, if today you would say, yes, I am following Jesus, What's the the condition of your heart today? Because the reality is we don't experience just one static emotion, right? It's not like we're just happy all the time. We're dependent all the time. Our heart and emotions, they vacillate. 
And it's appropriate and good for us to reconsider and to ask ourselves, where is my heart today in my posture toward Jesus? And so beginning in verse 32 in Mark chapter 10, we'll through the end of the chapter. I want you to pick up with me in, in verse 32 when it says, and they were on the road and going up to Jerusalem, Jesus was walking ahead of them. Now just there. So much detail in these verses. It, it's absolutely stunning and beautiful. And I pray that, that we can see this this morning because this is not the first time that Jesus would have been making this journey to Jerusalem. It, it was custom that Jesus with his disciples would have made the journey to Jerusalem at least three times a year over the three and a half years that he's been ministering. So this is not the first time that, that he was taking this journey with the disciples, and it would have been normal for Jesus to be walking with the disciples, to be walking beside them, to be teaching them, to be talking with them. Crowds would come and go as he was walking. That would have been normal. But that's not the picture that Mark paints for us. He says, on the road, Jesus was walking ahead of him, ahead of the disciples. There's this purpose, this intensity in Jesus' step. You can feel it. Something is about to happen. They're on the cusp of something different this time. There's a climax that everything's been talking about and rising for. And if you've ever been a child trying to keep up with your parents who's determined to get somewhere and they're walking quick and the little legs just can't quite keep up, this is the image that we have of Jesus walking ahead of the disciples. Luke tells us in chapter 9 that Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem. There is this focused intentionality. And I wonder, as Jesus was walking ahead of them, what was going through his mind? I wonder if part of that was a fulfillment of prophecy in Isaiah chapter 50. That spoke of this moment. That spoke of what lay ahead. Listen to the words from a prophecy spoken 700 years before. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may sustain how, how to sustain with the word those who are weary. Morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear. I was not rebellious. I have not turned back. I gave my back to those who strike. I gave my cheeks to those who will pull out my beard. I will not hide my face from disgrace. I will not hide my face from the spitting. But the Lord God, He helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. He will contend with me. Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Can you feel it? Like I wonder, because this is the saying, like Jesus set his eyes towards Jerusalem like a flint. He fixed his face towards Jerusalem. There is this intent welling up. There is a purpose in his step. It's like when you go for a run, you don't listen to, to quiet music. You want something with a beat that's driving you forward. And this is what I hear in the words of the prophet Isaiah, driving him forward, knowing exactly what lay ahead. He will be mocked. He will be spit on. They will pull out his beard. He will be flogged. He will be crucified. But he will not be defeated. 
Let us go to Jerusalem together. But then we see the emotions of the disciples, right? Look at what it says here in verse 33. As it continues in in verse 32, Jesus walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And then talking to the, the 12 again, he began to tell them what was going to happen. That we see this sense. Some disciples are, are amazed. This is it, right? Jesus is the Messiah. He's going to be enthroned as the king of the Jews. This is it. We prayed for this. We've waited for this. This is it. Like you can feel the electricity in the air and they're amazed at, at what they're seeing. Others see the exact same thing, but they're not amazed. They're afraid. They're like, this is it, right? Like he's going to be enthroned as king. Like the Jews aren't going to want this. We've seen how the high priests have responded. The Romans aren't just going to lie down and say, here you go. What is this going to mean? We've heard what Jesus has said before. Is there going to be battle? Is this war? Is this another revolt? Am I going to die? What's going to happen? And so you see this mixture of emotions within the disciples as together they're following Jesus. And it's here then that Jesus makes his third and final prediction as to what's going to happen. He knows exactly what awaits him on the horizon. We're going to Jerusalem. I will be condemned by the Jews. I'm going to be delivered to the Romans. They're going to mock me. They're going to spit on me. They're going to flog me. And then they're going to kill me. And on the third day, I'm going to rise again. This is as clear as it can be. Jesus knows exactly what awaits him. And he has set his face toward it and is walking there with deliberate purpose. And I think some of us may need to hear that this morning. Just that reality. Like in the application, like one takeaway is if you just, that Jesus intentionally and purposefully gave his life to save many. Like it wasn't an accident. It's not like Jesus said, oh, well, I guess this is what I have to do. Or, oh, no, I didn't know this was going to happen, but okay. Jesus knew exactly what awaited him. He knew exactly what he has come to do. We're going to see in in verse 45, which is the key, the theme, if you will, of the gospel of Mark, that he came not to, to be served, but to serve and to lay his life down as a ransom for many. That is why he has come. And that is the purpose behind his steps. He knew what it would cost him to save you. That if you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you can know with a certainty that it wasn't just an accident. It wasn't just a happenstance. It wasn't just something that God involuntarily had to do. He, with great intentionality and purpose, said, this is what it cost. This is what I'm going to do. And it will be done. Come, follow me. This is the reality of what we see when Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. But there's also that question, would we still follow? (laughs) Like Jesus just said this, right? I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. He's already told them persecution that's going to lay ahead for the disciples. John 15 records where 
Jesus tells the disciples, look, a servant isn't greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. In, in Matthew 10, look, you're going to be hated by everybody because of my name. Because you follow Jesus, you will be rejected. Come, follow me. There's a cost to following. There's emotion, but sometimes I wonder if we actually think about that. Are, are we just following Jesus to get blessing and to get an easier life and to get things that, that are going to benefit us? Or do we realize that it's going to cost us? He is inviting us to come and die to ourselves. This is what it means to be a disciple. Come, follow me. And some will have amazement. Some will be afraid. But both follow. But what we're going to see unfold in these next two sections is one is going to follow Jesus with this prideful ambition. They're following, but they're still looking to get something for themselves. And then we're going to see this account of someone who is following Jesus with this humble servitude, this humbling of themselves and laying down. And it invites us then to ask ourselves the question, I'm following Jesus, but what is the condition of my heart this morning? Look as we continue in verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Can we just pause there a moment? Right? Like, like you, you feel what's happening here. For one, the ridiculousness of the question. Two, what did Jesus just say? I mean, the image I have in, in my mind is, is like a mother who's been sick all night long, like puking her guts out, hair a mess, can barely has the strength to stand up. Right? And then a child comes and says, hey, I want you to do whatever I ask. Okay, Now, a child may come and, and say that to a parent, and the, the first question you're going to be like is like, what do you want? Because <laughs> right? I know this is going to be a ridiculous ask, because you're just wanting this blanket yes before you even ask of it. But this is the audacity, the, the, the prideful boldness that James and John are coming to Jesus with. But the thing is, is Jesus doesn't just immediately rebuke them and blast them for it. He's like, okay, what do you want? Tell me what you want. Well, they tell him, like, we want to sit at your right and at your left hand. This is what we want. Now, what they are asking is in their mind, they're still thinking Jesus is going to be the Messiah. He's going to be enthroned. He's going to be king. This is a new administration. When we arrive in Jerusalem, this is going to be what's happening. To be at his right and at his left is to say, in U.S. terms, I want to be vice president and speaker of the house. Right? Second and third in command. I mean, if you're going to die, then I can take over. If I'm at your right hand, this is what they're asking for. And Jesus is like, you don't understand what you're asking for. Yeah, 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 no, 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 no. We want to sit at your right and at your left. Jesus was going to be lifted up. He was going to be enthroned in Jerusalem. There would be a sign above his head that would declare that Jesus of Nazareth is king of the Jews. People meant it 
and mockery, even though it was true. And there would be somebody on his right and on his left. James and John had no idea in physical terms what it meant. And they had no idea what it meant spiritually of what they were asking. And Jesus asked them a question that I think is helpful for us to understand. One, he's like, can you drink of the cup that I'm going to drink? Can you be baptized with the same baptism with which I will be baptized? Now, for some, we can just read through that, and it kind of just throws out religious language, but it's helpful for us to understand what this means. What is this cup that Jesus is going to drink from? Why can't James and John drink from that cup? What is Jesus referencing? Because in Habakkuk, Lamentations, Jeremiah, Zechariah, Psalms, all speak of a cup. A cup of God's wrath. That it said it was the the righteous anger of God against unrighteousness that would be given to the nations that would cause them to stagger before a holy God. This is the cup that Jesus is about to drink in full. The angry wrath of God. Can you drink of that cup? Can you drink of that cup and not stagger? Can you drink of that cup and not be consumed and destroyed? Can you be baptized with the same baptism with which I'm going to be baptized? Jesus asked. He's not talking about water baptism. He's, he's talking about this idea of baptism to be emerged, to be surrounded, to be engulfed by suffering. The sins of the world upon his shoulders. Can you be baptized in that baptism? James and John in arrogance. Like, yeah, bring it on. If you can drink it, I can drink it. If you can endure it, I can endure it. And Jesus is like, you have no idea what you're talking about. Now the other ten, they hear what's going on. And they're furious. They're indignant. They're not mad because like, did you hear what Jesus just said? He just said that he's going to be mocked and spit on and killed. And now you're worried about what place you're going to have in his kingdom. They're not mad about that. They wanted the same position. They wanted to be second and third in command. They're mad because they didn't get to Jesus first. And so Jesus then begins to teach them. He's like, look, the world, world's rulers, is what it says. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, of lorded over them, and that their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be a slave to all, for even the Son of Man, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many." See, the, the world's rulers, those with power, lord it over people. They use their position as privilege to meet their own needs. This is how the world uses and abuses their power and authority. And Jesus is saying, not so with you. Not so with the kingdom of God. You want to be great? Then serve people. You want to be first? 
then sacrifice your ambition. Sacrifice your desires. Lay yourself down for the sake of others. This is not only the example of Christ, but the command of Christ for all those who would follow him. In the kingdom of God, power is not sought after, it is given away. Leaders will be marked by self-sacrifice and suffering. That is the example of a Christian. And that leads to then the key theme of all of Mark and what we see in what Jesus proclaims here. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so I want to pause here and and give an opportunity to reflect. Are you following Jesus with a prideful heart? Like, how do we identify that in ourselves? Like, we can look at James and be like, how could they be so dense, right? How could they not get it? And we can almost stand in condemnation of them. Get it without actually taking a moment to consider, maybe I'm like James and John. Maybe that pride is in my own heart. How do we identify that? Do you ever make demands of God or bargains with Him? Like, God, in prayer, give me this. Or if you give me this, then I'll do that. And we try to barter. That could be an indication, a symptom of pride in our heart. Do you hear a sermon and you think, you know who needs to hear this? I should get this link afterwards and send it to them because they should really hear this before actually considering how you might need it. That could be an indication of pride in your heart. Do you see yourself above certain tasks in the church? Like, I'm, I'm too educated. I, I, I have too high of a, a role. I've been here too long. I shouldn't have to move chairs anymore or set up signs or serve coffee. Do you see yourself as above certain tasks? Like, I should be on the platform now. Don't I deserve that? You may be following Jesus with pride in your own heart. Are you too proud to ask for help? Do you become defensive and justify your sin when someone confronts you and say, hey, I I saw this, and you're like, yeah, 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 but we wrestle with the same pride that James and John came to Jesus with. And though it's kind of humorous, we do the same thing. Lord, I want you to give me whatever I want. And if you don't, I'm going to be bitter and upset because I really think I deserve this and I know better. We can come to Jesus with that same sinful pride in us. But then we see another side. Someone who is going to follow Jesus not out of a prideful ambition, but with a humble servitude. Someone who would not be expected. This picks up in verse 36. When they came to Jericho, and as Jesus was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. There's so much that we're going to see in this part. I I absolutely love it. 
But consider this for a moment. You're blind. You cannot see. You you sit by the entrance uh, of the city of Jericho. You've heard the rumors. You heard when Jesus came, Jesus is here. Jesus of Nazareth. This one that he's healed the blind, the lame. He's, He's cast out demons from people. This could be the Messiah. The Messiah. The whispers throughout the city. You wake up in the morning out by the city gate and and you hear the murmuring. You hear the crowd gathering. This is different. Something's different this morning. You can't see it, but you're hearing it. You're feeling it, right? There's the crowd that's coming around. He's coming. And all of a sudden, in desperation, you begin to cry out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. You're laying aside all dignity. This, this word is, is to shriek. It's to cry out. There's nothing being reserved. There's nothing held back. This is full out. Embarrass yourself. Cry out for help. This is, this is everything. People are embarrassed. They're like, please calm yourself down. Don't you know who this is? This is important. You're nobody. Be quiet. Don't mess with Jesus. And he won't. He doesn't care. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy. Jesus, son of David, have mercy. Can you hear it? He's crying out. Nothing can hold him back. And Jesus is like, call him. Call him. And then it's this amazing phrase in in verse 50. It says, in throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. See, it's it's all in the details. This cloak, some say, would have been given to him by the government. It was a sign, a symbol of he, he is approved to receive alms. It's verified that the person who's holding the, the cardboard sign saying, I need money, actually needs money. This was one of his few possessions. This was his security, his warmth, his future to be able to receive alms. And he leaves it. He leaves it to the side and he comes to Jesus with everything, with all the desperation, with all the hope for his future, for everything, only in all Jesus. No pride, no self-dependency on himself or on others. He is throwing himself fully at the feet of Jesus. And then Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Now, here's the thing I find fascinating. Isn't that what James and John asked? When they came to him on pride, I want you to do whatever we want. Now, this blind man comes to Jesus, throws himself at his feet, and Jesus is like, what do you want me to do for you? And Bartimaeus, sometimes I think we're too familiar. The the fact that he asked for his sight, or we think is normal. But since when is that normal? Like, have you ever had somebody like stand at the intersection with a cardboard sign and they come up to your to your car window, and they're like, well, would you just pray so that, that I'm blind, but that I would be able to see? Or, or, or they come up to your window, and they're like, 
my legs have been amputated or that I'm paralyzed. And, and if you could just pray, I'd like to be able to walk. No. People, and they're like, can you spare a dollar? Can you spare some change? Like, it would have been normal for Bartimaeus to come to Jesus and be like, do you have a few shekels you can spare? But that's not what he said. He has declared, and he's one of the only people who have used that messianic term of son of David, speaking of Jesus, that he's crying it out. And and he says, Rabbi, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. That is not a normal request. If we can just feel the desperation and faith that Bartimaeus is bringing to Jesus. And and Chuck Swindoll, who's a pastor and author, speaks of this, that there is a double meaning that Jesus receives this request in, and then what Jesus says to him in response. It's called a, a double entendre. It means you're saying one thing, but it means that, and it means something else. And so Chuck Swindoll wrote that Jesus accepted the man's request as a double entendre and a clear indication of his faith. The Lord responded to Bartimaeus with his own double meaning response. Your faith has made you well. It's interesting, not just well as in sight, that the word is soza. It means I save. I save. In one sense, Jesus saved Bartimaeus from his blindness. In another sense, Jesus saved Bartimaeus from his sins. Bartimaeus wasn't just asking to recover his sight. He was asking for for the salvation of his soul. And Jesus, in his response, is declaring, I am saving you of both. Saving you of your blindness and saving you of your sin. Bartimaeus was healed. And here's the thing. And immediately, he recovered his sight and followed Jesus on the way. Followed him. He didn't go back for his cloak. He didn't go back to start a new life now that he could see and start a family and get a job. He didn't just use the blessing that he got from God so he could have his best life now. He laid down his life to follow Jesus. He wasn't just interested in getting his sight from God. He needed Jesus completely. And Bartimaeus gave his life fully to Jesus. Like, I, it's interesting to me. One of the things that stands out, and I couldn't find anything in, in church history, is Mark speaks with specificity to Bartimaeus. His name as the blind beggar and who his father was. Which is unusual textually because this was written to Christians in Rome. And so it's assumed that somehow the original readers of Mark's gospel knew who Bartimaeus was. This was part of his history and story. We don't know what that means, but the reason why it strikes me is what it meant that Bartimaeus followed Jesus in complete surrender. That desperation led to a humble servitude. Followed him on the way to Jerusalem. It means he was there when Christ 
was crucified. He was there when he rose from the dead. What does it look like for us to follow with this humble servitude? Like, I think that's a question we need to ask ourselves, not just the conviction of, am I following Jesus with a prideful ambition, but am I following Jesus with a, a humility, a surrender? Is there a spiritual desperation? Uh, like this reality that if Jesus was walking across, like if you could have lunch with Jesus, what would be the conversation? Are you going to bring out your laundry list of requests to him? Like, hey, Jesus, now that I have your attention, I could really use help with these things. Or would we cry out, Lord, have mercy? What is it that you want to say? What is it that I need to hear? Are we going to speak more or would we listen more? Is there a desperation in us that says, who am I to be in the presence of God? And then we realize that he would call us sons and daughters because he gave his life as a ransom. Like this is the weight of the gospel that I pray leads our hearts to repentance and rejoicing. What securities do you need to lay aside? Last week we used the language of a child coming to, to their, their father with the arms full of all their stuff. And in the same way I see this in, in Bartimaeus' life, throwing aside his cloak and coming to Jesus, his securities, his, his warmth, his, his future, the way that, that he was going to be able to, to take care of himself and collect alms. He lays all of that aside to come to Jesus. To follow Jesus in a humble servant heart. It means we're trusting him fully. We're not trusting in ourselves. We, are, we don't have a backup plan. It's all in. We're following him wherever he leads. Wherever he's going, we're going to go. Whatever he says to say, we're going to say. Whatever he calls us to do, we're going to do. And there's no, nothing else. Do you want just a little bit of Jesus in the hopes that you can go back to a normal life that is somehow a little bit better, a little bit more blessed, a little bit easier, just add a little bit of Jesus to it? Or are you coming to Jesus in complete abandon, saying, I got nothing. I'm leaving all the false securities behind. I'm laying it down at your feet. I'm crying out for mercy and I'll follow you wherever you call us to go. I pray that that would be our heart. That we wouldn't just seek Jesus to make our life a little easier, but we would follow Jesus because he is the son of God. Because he is worthy. Because he laid down his life. He drank the cup of God's wrath so that we could drink a cup of mercy. So what else is there except to say, here I am, Lord. Use me for your glory in whatever way you would have. Let's pray.
Lord, I thank you. Your words sometimes are so familiar in my own heart that I have to slow down to feel their weight. Lord, that you being the eternal God, having created heaven and earth and all that is in it, that you would take on human flesh, live among us, and then say that you came not to be served by your creation, though you absolutely deserved it, Lord, but that you would lay down your life for us, taking the punishment of our actions. Lord, it can be such familiar words, but there's a, a depth, a weight to it that our hearts need to feel. That you would lay down your life as a ransom for many. But Lord, even just to say you laid down your life as a ransom for me. Lord, would you help us to feel the weight of these words that our hearts may be lifted into rejoicing. To taste the sweetness of your mercy. To cry out in desperation and not be turned away, but to be received, to be healed. Lord, we need that this morning. We so desperately need that. Would you help our minds to understand the depth and the breadth and the, the width of your love? Lord, would you help our hearts to feel the beauty of your holiness and the sweetness of your mercy? And in Jesus' name, amen.